This is the Major 150 Podcast. I'm Tristan Gruno. For this last episode of the Meiji at 150 podcast series, I'm joined by Dr. Hitomi Yoshio of Waseda University of Tokyo, Japan, for a special conversation about the makings of this podcast and about some of my own thoughts on the state of Japanese history and Japanese studies when looking back from the perspective of the sesquicentennial. It's a great honor to welcome Dr. Tristan Gruno here at Waseda University for a celebration and a special live recording of the final episode of the Meiji at 150 podcast series. My name is Hitomi Yoshio, and I will be the host for today's event. So I'd like to first thank Waseda University for sponsoring the event, especially the Global Japanese Studies Model Unit of Waseda University's top global university project, and the Global Japanese Literary and Cultural Studies Program and the Graduate School of Letters, Arts, and Sciences. So to begin, could you tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, your expertise, and how you came to hosting this podcast? Was this something that you've been thinking of doing personally, or did it come to you as part of the larger Meiji 150 project? Well, I also want to extend thanks to all of those groups you mentioned, to you for hosting, and for all of you for being here. It's great to, to see so many people. Thank you for listening. I understand Dr. Yoshio was assigning the podcast episodes I was watching the clicker go up in the minutes before you all came today. So thank you for doing your homework, too. So, <laughs> uh, but it's actually, it's great to be here at Waseda. In fact, I, I was an exchange student here in 2002. Oh, wow. uh, so 2002 to three. That was my first time to Japan. I was 18 years old, like I understand many of you are as well. So about the podcast, I am a bit embarrassed to admit it was a bit of an afterthought, to be mm-hmm. honest. Last year at the University of British Columbia, I had the great honor and the privilege to host the Meiji at 150 project, which was this much larger project that brought in, final number was almost about three dozen scholars over to Vancouver or different workshops and lecture series and digital teaching resource, all about the 150th anniversary of the Meiji Restoration, trying to problematize and rethink the sesquicentennial. And so as a way to make this as accessible, make it as freely available and and as impactful as possible, we wanted to put videos of all of the lectures online. And so, in fact, if you go to the Meiji at 150 website, you can watch videos of all of the lectures and the the various workshops. But then we were thinking, well, another way to, to do some outreach would be to, you know, for people, if you don't want to sit down and watch a video, well, you can download the podcast and listen to it. While you're commuting, you're on the bus, you're driving, whatever, you're walking somewhere. So, well, if I'm going to have audio of all of the lectures, I might as well interview the lectures. And then I I looked around, and sure enough, UBC had a recording studio that was free. Uh, Nobody was using it, so I could just go at any time I wanted to. And I said, well, if I'm going to interview the lectures, I might as well interview all of the people on campus who do Japanese studies. And so... So it was your idea. It was okay. Yeah, I guess it was. Uh, but and then, I, you know, I was fortunate to have a, a number of colleagues who study Japan in different aspects, art, art history, literature. So I said, well, I'll reach out to them. Then I'll reach out to anybody who's coming through campus. And it just so happened that Tom Conlon was going to be on, on campus the very next week. And he very graciously agreed to be the first guest. And then it just kind of went from there. And then once I exhausted all of my colleagues and they got tired of me begging them to be on the, uh, the podcast... Then I discovered this software that allows me to do remote interviews like I did with Dr. Yoshio. Once I was able to figure out how to do these remote interviews, I just kind of opened an entirely new window and I just started reaching out 
to anybody and, and everybody I could think of. Uh, and then it just kind of snowballed mm. from there. <laughs> Luckily, a lot of people said yes. It, it meant a lot of recording at midnight or yeah. 10, 10 at night, 6 in the morning. But I was able to interview people all over the world. Yeah. Uh, so it was, it was very <laughs> rewarding in that, in that respect. Mm. So I know you interviewed over 100 scholars so far. But how, how did you choose exactly which scholars to interview? And how was it working with them? Yeah, it's up to 116 now. And thankfully, I'm going to stop it when I hit 120. And the reason for that is I have 30 episodes of student podcasts and things like that. So I'm going to stop. It's going to be exactly 150 episodes of the Meiji at 150 podcast. That was just too good of a number to pass up. It's been very fun and very rewarding. I'm glad it's coming to an end. I have four <laughs> episodes left, and then, I, and then I can stop spending all of my free time editing uh, and, <laughs> and worrying about recording. And I also had to draw a line somewhere. Uh, but no, from from the beginning of the planning, even going back to the the Meiji at 150 project, Christina Laffin and I, who were working together very closely, we wanted it to be very representative of the diversity and energy, the vibrancy of, of Japanese studies not only in Canada, but also around the world. And so, of course, I, I kept my eye out for anybody coming out with a new book on the Meiji period, for example. And then there were a number of you know, senior scholars who had done work previously on the Meiji period, would be able to weigh in and give their thoughts about the Meiji period, give us a more kind of longitudinal perspective. But I wanted to make sure it wasn't just history. As a historian, of course, maybe tended a little bit towards more historians, but I wanted to make sure that there was good representation of people doing pre-1868 as well as post-1868. I wanted to make sure that we had a good group of people who are active outside of the U.S. even. Coming from Canada, I'm aware that you know, Americans tend to set the Anglophone discourse, I think. And so I wanted to counteract that by bringing in people. And I'm very uh, grateful that people as far afield as Australia, Singapore, Israel, Germany, Denmark, the UK, New Zealand even, and as many different fields as possible as well, like I said, not just history, but literature, art history, architecture, photography, anthropology, poli-sci, economics, film. So I was always very careful about trying to make sure, again, representing the vibrancy of the field. There's been discussions lately uh, at the last AAS meeting in, in Denver, for example, there was a panel called The Death of Japan Studies, and this led to a very heated debate, you know, especially, you know, in America, is Japan Studies dying? And hopefully this series is showing that, no, there is life uh, in Japanese studies, especially if we look more broadly. I do have a few favorite episodes. I spent a lot of time doing each of them, so it's hard to, to pick out one's but I would say that there, there's several that are memorable because they're representative of different styles of episodes. And this wasn't intentional or by design at all. It just kind of happened this way. But I break down the episodes into styles. One immediately that comes to mind as a memorable episode, and if you haven't listened to it already, go listen to Carol Gluck's episode where she talks about what does the field of Japanese history look like at 150. Uh, and so she's looking specifically at the Japanese historiography. How are Japanese historians looking at the Meiji Restoration right now? But she gives a, a great example of uh, of how the podcast series, I think, is useful for getting kind of a snapshot of the field today. A second one is Andrew Gordon's episode. It was great to hear his personal story about how he got into Japanese history. Mm -hmm. But then there, there's a number of episodes that are introducing new topics that 
that I hadn't even been familiar with. Uh, Sherilyn Orbaugh, for example, talks about Nogi Shizuko, the wife of Nogi Maresuke, this very famous general who commits suicide on the day of Emperor Meiji's funeral. Nobody ever talks about the fact that his wife also committed suicide. It, it did not happen smoothly. And this is something that hasn't been published elsewhere, but we were able to publish on the podcast. I mean, so other episodes that are putting out new research, uh, Eric Hahn's episode uh, on Chinatown in Yokohama, Lionel Babich had an episode talking about February 11th, 1889, the day that the Meiji Constitution is promulgated, the day that Mori Arinori is assassinated, and the day that Nihon newspaper published for the first time. Those all happen on the same day. Steven Erickson challenging basically everything we've ever thought about economic history during the Meiji period. So those come to mind as episodes that kind of advance new understandings of the Meiji period. And then one of my favorites was episode 36 with Hiromu Nagahara. He wrote this great book called Tokyo Boogie Woogie about pop music in post-war Japan. So for the episode, he talks about some of the, the popular protest music of the Jiyu Minkenundo, the popular rights movement. But then we get into the post-war period. The reason I like this one is I was having a lot of fun with editing. I like post-war music. I like post-war film. We talked about a lot of those things. But when we were recording, Hiromu started singing this song called Wasurecha Iayo by Watanabe Hamako. And I immediately came to my head, ooh, I'm going to edit it to make him have a duet with <laughs> Watanabe Hamako. This is a song about imploring a lover not to forget her. And there's a line that even goes something along the lines of Wasurecha Iayo so the that was a lot of fun. <laughs> so, so that one definitely is memorable for me. Uh, another one that I had a lot of fun with was Mary White, who wrote a book called Coffee Life in Japan. Great book if you like Japanese coffee. I love Japanese coffee. I have all of those cool Japanese coffee utensils from Hario. I grind my own beans with a Hario conical burr grinder every morning. It takes me about 10 minutes, but it's the best <laughs> cup of coffee I have every day. We geek out about our favorite coffee brewing methods and our favorite coffee shops around Tokyo. Uh, even the aged coffee that, that I had in Gotondo one time. Uh, and, of course, she knew exactly who it was. She knew who had trained the, the barista and all everything. And so that was uh, a lot of fun. Uh, How much sure. of that stayed in the episode? Oh, no, that's in there. Oh, it's in there. <laughs> question. So as we approach the end of the series, approaching 120 interviews with scholars of Japanese studies in a number of fields, we get a snapshot of the field as it stands in 2019. So with this in mind, have you noticed any trends in the study of the Meiji period? Has there been a rethinking of the Meiji Restoration today, now with 150 years of hindsight? Absolutely. I, you know, every so often we've had these moments in the field where we can pause and reflect and think about what is the shape of the field. And the sesquicentennial, for sure, was one of those moments. And this came up a lot on these episodes. You know, Maybe as historians, we make too much of these big round numbers or we fetishize dates too much. But they are useful for a number of reasons, one of which is it's a moment to pause and reflect. And looking at this kind of snapshot of the field, not just history, but you know, other fields of Japanese studies as well, I've noticed a number of trends, and I, I could speak most directly to the field of history as my own expertise. As I said before, it's a very vibrant field, for sure. There's a new focus on transnational Japan, I would say. 
a lot of work, great work being done on Japanese migration. For so long, we, we've been challenging this narrative of, of Tokugawa Sakuk, pointing out, well, you know, the Tokugawa period was not actually a closed period or anything like this. And this was one of the themes that kept coming up in the podcast. Well, if we compare the Tokugawa to, say, the medieval period or the Meiji period, certainly there's a lot less interaction between Japan and the rest of the world than in those earlier times. But what's so remarkable is very quickly after the Meiji Restoration, you get this large movement of Japanese people around the world to Canada, the United States, Hawaii, Brazil. There's been a lot of great work being done now looking at this migration. What's pushing this migration? What's pulling this migration? What relationship does this migration have to Japanese imperialism later in the century? What relationship does this have to Japanese settler colonialism in Hokkaido, for example? Even a movement of Japanese from the mainland up into places like Hokkaido, Sakhalin, the Kuril Islands. And so there's a lot more attention being paid to these kind of transnational aspects of Japanese history. And settler colonialism, too, is coming into Japanese history as well. This is rethinking the Japanese empire from a more pan-imperial, transnational approach. I think this is something that's new to Japanese history. I think I only had two episodes looking directly at politics. So political history, you don't find too much anymore. Economic history, uh, intellectual history. You know, these fields, I, I think, are ready for a resurgence and ready for a revival. But then, you know, if we think about, you know, this is an opportunity also to rethink what the restoration means for Japan. There is a, let's say, a preferred narrative Certainly, the current administration here in Japan wants to think of the Meiji Restoration as a success story. If you look at the administration's website for Meiji 150, it's, we're going to relearn the lessons of Meiji for an ever more prosperous Japan. It's a smooth story of successful modernization, successful industrialization, this time when all Japanese people kind of gathered around these ideas of progress and responded to internal troubles and foreign threats to make Japan a better place. And it really is a story that emphasizes masculinity. It's a, it's a story that emphasizes youth. You can ask, well, what is the goal of this? Well, I think there's a domestic policy goal as well. It's also a story that can be repackaged and resold around the world at a time when the Japanese government's also doing a lot of overseas development assistance. This is a story that we can sell to developing countries in Africa, for example, I think is part of the idea. And so there's been a lot of responses to this from historians in particular. People like Carol Gluck, Mike Wirt, are pointing out that there's a lot of violence that often gets overlooked in the Restoration. The Boshin War, for example. Sure, it's no storming of the Bastille. Sure, it's no great terror. But a lot of people actually are impacted by the Restoration in a violent way. There's much more dissent on both sides and within the government and without the government than it often gets acknowledged. People like Marnie Anderson, Laura Nenzi are, are doing great work looking at the roles played by women in particular and, and individuals. James Huffman has a great new book about lower classes in late Meiji Japan. Simon Partner has a great new book on the actions of one Japanese merchant in Yokohama. You know, these are all non-state actors. Again, this is kind of complicating the story of the perspicacious Meiji leaders who are leading Japan along uh, almost against their will in some cases, but leading Japan along because they're these enlightened leaders. And so I'd say maybe there's a more, more of a recognition of the dark side of this Meiji success story. Maybe we can think of not as a successful story of modernization, but maybe it's a story of 
a government that's trying to put the brakes on things. I mean, this kind of brings to mind this old kind of narrative of the autocratic Meiji state, and that's certainly not what I'm trying to say, but you know, the government does put limits on popular rights and freedoms, for example, there limits on democracy, increasingly violent reactions to popular protest, increasing demands for conformity in the name of harmony, in the name of keeping everything peaceful, and often couched in terms like culture and social customs, things like this. And this is one of the legacies, I think, of the Meiji Restoration that's actually meaningful to think about today. One thing that I've noticed from studying the Meiji period, I'm looking at the Meiji period where you pick up any newspaper in the Meiji period and they are the most political things. There, nobody shies away from criticizing Ito Hirobumi. I, I mean, there's a great book, uh, Jason Carlin, who also teaches in Japan, has this book about gender in the Meiji period. There's this great chapter about how these cartoons where they're completely lambasting, especially Ito Hirobumi as the high-collar cabinet. And, you know, it's like, oh, he's just some effete Western politician who all he does is, is he just wants to be Western. And he has this whole list of things like, oh, you know, if you always insist on like, oh, well, over in America, you know, like these are, this is a sign that you might be a high collar individual. I mean, this is public discourse that is completely critical of the sitting government. You can track protests in Japan all the way from the 1850s Uchikowashi Yonaoshi riots to the Jiyu Minken riots, the Chichibu Jiken in 1884, the Fukushima Jiken in 1882, the 19-teens where there's riots every year in Tokyo on February 11th. This is not an accident. This, this is happening on Koken Kinembi. They're doing this on purpose from 1905 Hibiya riots all the way up to the rice riots in 1918. Large-scale riots in Tokyo. 1960s even, student protests, ample protests in 1960, 1968, students take over buildings at Todai, here at Waseda too. You know, this legacy of antagonism towards the government that I don't think you see in Japan anymore. So comparing Japanese society today to the Meiji society, you know, yeah, we could talk about, you know, this kind of drive to westernize all these things. What I see is, is it's a it's a society that civic engagement seems much more vibrant in the Meiji period. And so then that kind of gets back to that question of maybe the Meiji story is a story of the government kind of reacting, this kind of push and pull between society and the government that has produced, let's say, an environment where speaking out is kind of frowned upon. So maybe Japan isn't entirely conformist, but compared to the Meiji period, it doesn't seem to have the same kind of vibrant civic engagement that you saw as late as 1960. As I was saying before, there is this narrative, this preferred narrative of Meiji 150 is a, is a successful story of modernization, a smooth modernization, peaceful success story. This last year, though, I was very privileged to be able to host another large event. I, I think I'm running the risk of, of turning into the, the 150 guy uh, because this year I co-organized and co-hosted with Yubi Nakamura, a curator at UBC Museum of Anthropology, what we called Hokkaido 150, Settler Colonialism and Indigeneity in Modern Japan and Beyond. Even in Hokkaido, the Hokkaido 150 coincided with Meiji 150, which is actually a year premature. The island of Ezochi, or Ainu Moshira, as it was known to the Ainu, was colonized in 1869 by the Meiji government, basically. It was renamed Hokkaido in 1869. And so we wanted to commemorate that and use that as an opportunity to, again, kind of rethink Japanese history. In this case, 
by bringing in the history of settler colonialism into Japan's past or into Japanese history, while also putting Japan into this conversation about global settler colonialisms. Settler colonialism as a discourse is defined by the white settler colonial nations, the U.S., Canada, Australia, New Zealand. Japan doesn't really get included into that conversation. And so we're asking ourselves, well, how does the case of the Ainu in Hokkaido, how does that complicate settler colonialism? And how does recognition of settler colonialism complicate our understanding of Japanese history? And so we hosted this workshop. And this was a meaningful conversation in Canada because Canada, as a settler colonial nation, is coming to terms with its own settler colonial past. Just released a new commission report on murdered and disappeared indigenous women and children. And five years ago, had the Truth and Reconciliation Commission trying to deal with how do we come to terms with this past and how do we even decolonize Canada as a society. So hopefully this will start a conversation about not only can we recognize Japan's own settler colonial history, but maybe start a conversation about indigenous rights for the Ainu and hopefully even in the future decolonizing Japanese history and Japan's society as well. that I appreciated about your podcast is even though the podcast is called Meiji at 150 and you're interviewing scholars who have worked on or work on Meiji, the work extends beyond Meiji into pre-Meiji or even the post-war and the contemporary period. So at the same time that this podcast has allowed you to think critically about Meiji and gather all these scholars to talk about Meiji, it also questions, I guess, the framework of Meiji itself. And I think also in literary studies, there's maybe a similar disintegration or questioning of these historical periods or traditional methods of study. One question I ask a lot, especially in the early episodes, is, is 1868 a meaningful date? Mm -hmm. It was really interesting to hear how people in different fields answered that question. You know, the historians would all say, well, yeah, of course. I mean, the actual Osei Fuko itself, well, that was a pretty small thing. But the kind of revolutionary impact of the restoration was was much broader. Whereas the literature people would say, like, well, no, nothing changes until the 1880s. <laughs> you know, and, <laughs> right, that's right. Uh, and so it was interesting to see how different fields categorized or how they, how they drew these chronological breaks. Mm. When you were making these, did you have a certain audience in mind? And also, did you receive the sort of response and feedback that you expected from the podcast series? Or were there some unexpected responses? To be honest, I didn't have an audience in mind when we started, but then I very quickly discovered who the audience was. People who are listening, I think, for the most part, are other academics and then keenly interested non-academics mm -hmm. who have some understanding of Japan. Mm -hmm. With doing your homework just about an hour ago, I'm now up to 39,300 downloads or so. Uh, and so the way this works, it's not just, you know, automatically downloaded episodes. It's you actually have to hit the play button and then it starts downloading it. And so that means the episodes have been listened to 39,000 times. I mean, as you might expect, the U.S. gets the most, uh, but Japan's right there at number two. Uh, and I've, I've heard from colleagues in Japan, Japanese colleagues, who are saying they're listening to it as a way to study English. 
even and say they're you know they're familiar with the content, learning how to express this content in English, for example. But yeah, Canada gets a lot. Singapore has quite a few as well because I've had a number of guests from Singapore. This is the first time that I've assigned the podcast, but I think yeah, I think podcast is a is a wonderful way, especially for undergrads, because reading a, a book or even an article can be intimidating. And when scholars write、uh, articles, they tend to use jargons. They want to sound intelligent. I mean, they you know they write with a certain style. But I think when you're forced to speak about your work, then you have to really kind of. You know, use clear language and simplify the ideas, and and the emphasis is more to convey. So, I think even you know, with my own experience in recording with you, it was a great way to kind of look at the larger frame of of my work rather than kind of looking at the specific and kind of telling a narrative.、Um, and I think a lot of the people you interview do that. And so, I think as a pedagogical tool, it's it's a wonderful way to for students to get a taste of what scholarship is like. Yeah. It's a condensed version for sure, and the students get to hear about the thought process behind it.、Uh, as a pedagogical tool, I, I've had mixed results, to be honest. Believe me, it wasn't entirely selfish that I was just wanted to get more downloads, something like this. But I did assign it to my students in, in both classes that I was teaching at UBC, and my rationale was that this way they're being introduced to work in a much more accessible way. I mean, again, accessibility was one of the things I was always concerned about. Books cost a lot of money. I mean, I, I teach at a state school in Canada. Granted, tuition isn't as high. We can't assign five, six books to our students and expect them to read them all. So I was thinking, UBC is a commuter school. I have students who commute two, three hours a day, well, an hour and a half each way, right? Three hours total. You know, if they're driving, they can't read a book. If they're on the bus, they can't read a book very well. And so I was thinking, I could assign the podcast and just have them listen while they're commuting. <laughs> they're like, well, Dr. Gruno, that's great, but I don't like having your voice in my head all the time. <laughs> I already have to be in your class now. I have to listen to you all the time.、Um, uh, so that's very fair.、Uh, <laughs> they did say that they were a little long. So 30 minutes, they said, was too long. 15 minutes would be perfect. They said I was assigning two episodes a week,、uh, two to three, depending on the topic, thinking. Well, I expected to do an hour's worth of reading. An hour's worth would be fifty, sixty pages or so, and so I'll expect to do an hour's worth of listening. I, I think it's one of yeah. So the, the idea is certainly good as a as a pedagogical device. And again, that comes up back to us as a teacher. It's the same with a reading material. If we don't directly address the reading material in class, then students don't necessarily feel like they have to do it. So a lot of that comes back to us and how we engage with the assigned materials in our classroom. I mean, we talked about it as a pedagogical tool. I think we also need to talk about it as a historical tool, right? When talking about what we as scholars, how we can contribute to the broader conversation. So I assigned it to students as a way to show students that there is more than one way to do history. We so often think that the only kind of historical product. Or the only type of scholarly product is that you know that boring research paper, and so I、I've, I always try to bring in let's say alternative forms of scholarly production into my classroom. I allowed my students.、Uh, so this was a class that was supposed to be an introduction to history, materials and methodologies using Japan-related content, and so I said, well, there's multiple forms of history. There's public history. There's historical fiction. And you can do all of these things for your final project. You could 
make a magazine article if you wanted to. You could write a historical prose fiction if you wanted to. I had one student come up with the best 20-cell manga, a historical manga that I'd ever seen. He drew the entire thing himself. And so I also gave the students the opportunity to record these podcast episodes. I said, well, you're doing the research just like you would for a research paper, but rather than trying to write in this stilted, jargon-filled language, now you're actually going to be producing a podcast instead. And so the ones that I published, the 25 student podcasts, and they were absolutely eager to do it, partly because they didn't want to write a, you know, a 10-page research paper, but others because they, you know, they listened to podcasts too, and so or they wanted to kind of envision themselves as radio DJs or something like this, and, and so they got really into it. And the assignment, if you listen to those episodes, the first generation, it was talk about aspects of Japanese pop culture that you're really interested in. I had uh, one student talking about Japanese whiskey, which, remember, the drinking age is 18 in Canada, so it's okay, you know, right? <laughs> so it's okay that the student was doing this. Another student who, who got really into uh, Japanese otoresu, like those, those motorcycle racing. And so it was really fun to get them talking about it. And again, just kind of having a conversation. So then they get into it. You know, they have fun doing it. But then they're also learning something about historical production. Uh, the second generation, the second time I did it, the second year, I wanted it to be a little bit more thematic. And so uh, I actually assigned groups certain topics this year. And so now I'm releasing these uh, under what I'm calling the Japan on the Record podcast series. So these are supposed to be a little bit more contemporary, more politically oriented. So I had a group of students researching pollution in Tokyo, for example. And so then they five students all together researched different aspects of, of pollution and other social issues in Tokyo, and they collectively put together an episode. Part of it is they learn the audio production too, but the important part is they're doing the research and they get into it. And with all of these alternative assignments, it's you know, encouraging them to find a topic that they're passionate about and giving them a medium that they can be equally passionate about. Actually, we're, we're out of time. <laughs> so thank you so much for coming to Vasilya. And thank you all for coming. This episode of the Meiji 150 podcast was hosted at Waseda University in Tokyo, Japan, and would not have been possible without the support of the top global university project, Waseda University Global Japanese Studies Model Unit. Find out more about the Meiji at 150 project, including the Meiji at 150 lecture series, digital teaching resource, and workshop series by visiting our website, meijiat150.arts.ubc.ca. Thank you for listening.